I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, journalist Jefferson Morley returns to discuss his new book, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate, a book that examines the dole histories of CIA Director Richard Helms and President Richard Nixon culminating in the Watergate break-in. In examining the lives of these two men, and what Morley calls their clandestine collaborative relationship, Scorpion's Dance explores the nature of secrecy and power in American politics during the Cold War. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Jefferson Morley on Scorpion's Dance, the President the Spymaster, and Watergate. Welcome back to Parallax Views, one of my favorite guests to have on, a journalist, Jefferson Morley, author of a number of books, including the book we'll be talking about today. I'll hold it up here. Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. How are you doing today? I'm good. Good to be here. The book comes out in a week. So um, I've been very busy talking to lots of people. And thanks for the chance to talk to you and your friends. So uh, Jefferson, maybe for uh, listeners uh, that want to pick up this book, it's sort of a different look at Watergate. You're looking at Watergate not through either the mainstream lens or a, a revisionist lens necessarily. You're kind of looking at the two figures of Richard Helms and Richard Nixon. So how did that come about? What what led you to write this book about uh, Richard Helms and Richard Nixon in the lead up and aftermath of Watergate? Well, I was was visiting a site called nixontapes.org, which is created by uh, Luke Nichter, who was then a professor at Texas A&M University. And he had collected all of the Watergate tapes that had been made during the Watergate era Um, most of which had never been made public because they didn't figure in the exact investigation of Nixon. You know, the Watergate investigators only focused on a handful of events. And then Nixon was pardoned and uh, uh, resigned and was pardoned. And so nothing happened. The the investigation was never completed. So I thought this was a very valuable historical resource. And I was just curious about it because the tapes are so extraordinary. And while I was searching that site, 
Nictor had organized different conversations and he had organized all of the conversations between Richard Nixon and Richard Helms, um, one of which was quite central to the whole Watergate scandal, but I had never seen the others. Um, and in there, Nictor said, this is the only instance that we have of recorded conversations between a CIA director and American president. And I thought right away, that, that's a good story. I mean, that, that's a unique collection of, 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 of recordings. And so I focused right in on them. And uh, um, <clears throat> I thought of them a couple of years ago when I was thinking about what could I, after I'd finished my second CIA book, The Ghost, what could I, you know, what could I do next? And I was looking ahead to the, and I realized if I'd started writing a book back then, it would come out in time for the 50th anniversary of Watergate. So I thought of those tapes and that was really the genesis of the book. And what, what I came to, my conclusion that I sort of came to in thinking about the book was, like you said at the top, you know, there's the, the kind of the mainstream account, the Washington Post account, the all the president's men account which is really a story of, you know, a crusading press takes on a lawless president. You know, that's kind of a mythological or mythical description of that story. And I'm not saying it's mythical because it's not true. I'm just saying it's mythical because it, that's how we think of it. And then there's the revisionist accounts of Watergate that say, you know, something else was at, at play. And, and um, I was especially impressed by uh, Jim Hogan's book, Secret Agenda, about Watergate, which pointed out that the Washington Post, all the president's men narrative, really missed or couldn't explain a lot of things about what had actually happened. So I was trying to keep those two things in mind. And as I, as I thought about Helms and Nixon, I thought that, I mean, I went in thinking that the CIA role had probably been underplayed at the time. Right. It usually is because the CIA is adept at hiding secrets. And that was certainly true of Richard Helms in the Watergate affair. The, 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 the mainstream narrative, the, the all the president's men narrative, the CIA doesn't really figure. The CIA is kind of an innocent bystander. Uh, that really wasn't the case. The CIA was deeply involved. We now know that Helms recommended Howard Hunt to the White House a year before the burglary. Um, and had dissembled about a whole bunch of other things. So I thought going in that the CIA's role was underplayed and I was looking to build that up. I wasn't looking to take on the mainstream narrative or the revisionist narrative. I mean, I found there's elements of truth in, 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 in both of them. Um, and uh, so I wanted to um, really frame the whole story in a different way. OK, it was not Watergate was not just a chapter in the history of the press and it wasn't just a chapter in the history of Richard Nixon's presidency. It was also a chapter in the history of the CIA. And so, so through that lens, I look at, you know, the story of these two men and how it shaped that. But it is a different look at, at Watergate. You know, the, the Watergate break in doesn't occur until about two thirds of the way through the book. Um, so but I think that you can't understand that without understanding the relationship between those two men and how it led up to that fateful event. So I want to get more into that relationship because I sure. think you call it a uh, clandestine collaborative relationship that really ends up shaping a lot of history. And yeah. I also like that you mentioned your previous book, uh, The Ghost, about James Angleton, because uh, he even pops up in this book. So everything <laughs> ends up connecting together a little bit. But yeah. uh, what, what, what I really want to start with is... Um, you know, I think a lot of younger audiences, they'll know that Richard Nixon sort of ended up disgraced and, and you know, he resigned over Watergate. Uh, but I want to talk about like who Nixon was and also who Helms was, because at the beginning of the book, you really sort of contrast the two, because I think Nixon comes from this background where he sort of feels like he's he's not part of the sort of, I guess, the Eastern establishment, the, the culture elite. Absolutely. He's always right. bitter about that. Helms comes from a very different background in that. So could you talk about the contrasting backgrounds of Helms and, and Nixon? Well, um, uh, yeah, two very different characters, born only a couple of months apart, but on opposite ends of the country. So, you know, Nixon grows up in a poor family. His father was basically a failure at, at, at business. Um, uh, and, and, and Nixon always felt, you know, underprivileged and he resented those those elites and, 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 and always pitted and defined himself against them. 
and and Helms was really the very epitome of the Eastern establishment. He came from a, his father was a corporate executive. He'd gone to boarding school in Switzerland, um, had been a journalist in, in Nazi Germany after the war, um, was, and was, until World War II came along, Richard Helms was probably going to wind up being a newspaper publisher. He, you know, he was sort of an upper crust type of guy. That would have been very congenial to him. In World War II, Helms goes into the Navy and then into the Office of Strategic Services, which was really the precursor of the CIA, America's first intelligence agency. And then for that, falls in love with the secret intelligence profession and goes on and joins the CIA on the first day that it's founded in 1947. Nixon goes to war and basically never sees combat, but comes back very ambitious, uh, energetic guy and runs for Congress. And so the, the rise of these two men begins right after the war. And they take these very separate paths to power. You know, Helms is kind of the ultimate inside player, a man in a gray flannel suit, a bureaucrat, um, you know, low key, adept, you know, knows how to shuffle the paper, knows how to please the boss. And Nixon comes up, you know, slasher, attack politics, anti-communist, red baiter, um, very aggressive, um, populist. And so, but because of that, um, Eisenhower takes him on. Eisenhower is a moderate Republican. He needs to placate the right wing of his party in 1952. And so he takes on Nixon as his vice president. So at the same time, Helms is rising through the ranks of the CIA, always had a clean desk, a very pale fellow, well met, um, you know, uh, got along with everybody and was very good at his job running secret intelligence operations. So these two men come together for the first time in 1956. And so from 1956 on, they are both operating at the highest level of the US government. They might have been in the same room there's no, I found no record that they had had like personal meetings or anything like, like that, aside from one meeting in 1956, but they were certainly in meetings together and they were dealing with a lot of the same issues, starting with Cuba. And so I don't think, you know, Cuba in the Watergate affair that brings Nixon down, Cuba is very involved in that. Four of the burglars were, were Cuban Americans. Um, Howard Hunt had been, uh, uh, the CIA man had been a leader in the Bay of Pigs the CIA's failed invasion of Cuba. So you, you can't understand how those men came together under Nixon in 1972 without going back to Nixon and Helms dealing with the Cuba issue as early as 1960. And one of the things that I show in the book is that you know the, the politics of assassination were especially sensitive for these men um, because they had both been involved in Castro assassination plots. Nixon as vice president was kind of Eisenhower's point man on Cuba after the leftist Fidel Castro took power in 1959. Um, and real, real quick, and, and just sure. to get background on yeah. this for uh, listeners, because I, I think people forget, um, you know, I'm, I'm from Florida. So uh, right. if you go anywhere to Miami, uh, you'll, you'll find a lot of people that really hate Fidel Castro. But there's also another side of this where the Batista regime was not a very nice regime, so to speak. And there's sort of a reason that that, that revolution ended up happening. Yeah, no, I mean, when Castro took power, he really had the backing of the whole country. It was a, it was a very violent, corrupt, reactionary dictatorship that, you know, that, that had, um, uh, you know, offended or harmed many, many people in the country. And so Castro did come to power with enormous goodwill from, you know, virtually all of the country um, at that time. But he, he immediately met with hostility from the United States. And so... So the politics of assassination are really always there when Nixon and Helms are dealing with each other. And when they both reach positions of power later in their career, Helms becomes the director of the CIA in 1966, and Nixon is finally elected president in 1968 and decides to keep Helms on. So at that point, the, two, the backstory of these two men which is, you know, very much unspoken. Nobody really knew about it until many years later. It's very important understanding what happened next, what happened under Nixon's presidency. And what I try to show in Scorpion's Dance in the book is that really, you know, Helms was Nixon's enabler. And so this is a, this is a very different view of the Watergate uh, scandal than, say, all the president's men, where the CIA doesn't really figure in Nixon's lawlessness. 
Um, I think that the historical record shows that the CIA actually enabled Nixon's lawlessness and then was able to cover its tracks because, you know, they're the CIA. They know how to cover the tracks. <laughs> so I, I want to get more into the Cuba uh, element of the uh, book, but, but I also want to talk uh, just briefly here about, it's interesting. I do think in their path to power, they, they both come to understand how power works in different ways. And they both really come to understand early on the need for secrecy to get what they want done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because I, in the introduction, I call the book a, a biography of power. And I think ultimately that is what the book is about. It's about how, how power really is wielded by these, you know, people who hold positions of immense power, right? Helms is the director of the CIA. That's a, you know, at that time, it was a $3 billion a year agency, you know, which is the equivalent of about $20 billion a year today, which is really what we probably what the CIA budget is. So he's got a budget, of, he's got a 20,000 people working for him and a budget of, of, of the equivalent of $20 billion. He is a powerful man in the American scheme of things. And of course, the president is immensely powerful as well. So, but how does it actually work when these two guys are in the room together? And yes, the the secrets, you know, the using of secrets, the keeping of secrets, um, the trading of secrets is very important to how these men figure out, these two very different types, figure out how, how to get along. How can they get what they want from the other guy? So in regards to the Cuba element of the book, I, I think what's interesting is you, you pretty thoroughly document that you know, Richard Helms goes about saying, you know, we were never in the business of doing assassinations. We, we weren't going to assassinate Castro. But you show uh, pretty definitively that these operations like uh, AMLASH, um, there, there, there are so many acronyms I get them confused sometimes. <laughs> I think there's AMLASH, AMSPELL, and AMWORLD uh, right. all get mentioned in the book. But AMLASH is the one that pops up a lot. You show that, you know, no, assassination was really part of all this. Yes, it was. It was. And, um, uh, and, and it's what it's one secret that that Helms and Nixon had to keep because they knew it would be quite explosive, um, you know, if it came out what they were doing. And when it did come out many years later, well, after Nixon resigned, um, you know, in the, it wasn't until the mid 1970s and even even much more recently that we really got the declassified records showed us much more of that. Yes, AMLASH was an assassination operation. I interviewed the guy who supplied the gun for the operation, an amazing 95-year-old CIA veteran told me the story and, and, and totally debunked Helms's claim that there wasn't an assassination operation going on. So, and that was, you know, that was key, you know, and, and, and that's why presidents turn to CIA directors is to get, you know, nasty work that they want to disavow or deny like an assassination. That's why you, in the American scheme thing, that's why we have a CIA. And like, like Nixon says to, to, to Helms in one of the key discussions, you know, I will defend the dirty tricks department. You know, I totally support the dirty tricks department. That's what Nixon called it. And that's what it was. If you could, could you explain what, what was the sort of U.S. obsession uh, with Cuba? And then maybe talk a little bit about the Bay of Pigs, because I think it, the Bay of Pigs really becomes important when you think about these characters like E. Howard Hunt, because Hunt never forgave Kennedy for that. He blamed him yeah. till the day he died. You know, it's it's very yeah, it, uh, integral. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for Howard Hunt, the assassination of President Kennedy wasn't, uh, uh, you know, a pity or a tragedy. It was poetic justice. You know, he he was glad that Kennedy was killed and he wasn't afraid to say it. That's how hostile he was. But yes, the, going back to the Bay of Pigs and the, and the CIA in Cuba, why is that so important? Well, it's a couple of reasons. One, I mean, Cuba was, was like Puerto Rico. It was like it had been virtually a colony of the United States. In fact, in, in the early 1900s, by U.S. law, the Platt Amendment said the Cuban government could not take certain actions without the approval of the United States. It really was a kind of colonial status. And U.S. business interests had thrived there, um, uh, especially sugar, um, but also um, nickel, uh, which is something that uh, Cuba has in abundance. So U.S. economic interests were very strong there. Um, and um, throughout the 1950s, um, Batista was 
Fulgencio Batista was the military dictator of Cuba, totally subservient to, to US, in, US corporate interests and also to US organized crime interests. And um, Meyer Lansky, who had been the accountant for the, 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 the mafia, the organized crime syndicates in the United States, had moved to Havana as a place to do business. And he had this dream of turning Havana into the Monaco of the Caribbean, uh, a gambling, you know, luxury tourist center. And under Batista, that started to happen. And they, they, the organized crime interests bribed Batista. They gave him a cut. And Batista passed these, these laws creating casinos and giving big tax breaks to anybody who opened a casino or a hotel. And so Havana nightlife flourished in the 1950s. And it was like Las Vegas. You know, it was a place where you went for naughty fun, for gambling, prostitution, great music, you know, party, party central, you know. And uh, so throughout the 1950s, this was a very congenial arrangement for American corporate interests, for the crime people, for the tourists. You know, everybody was doing fine in Cuba, except for most of the Cuban people who were impoverished and completely shut out of this corrupt and undemocratic and very brutal government because people were very unhappy. And Batista shut off all dissent, um, controlled the press controlled the secret police, torture, murder, assassination, summary executions were very common. So Fidel Castro had risen up and taken up arms against this government starting in 1952. And over the course of seven years and a lot of very clever military and political organizing eventually organizes this rebellion that destroys this corrupt government and drives Batista out of the country. And, and Castro takes over with enormous goodwill because he had led the destruction of this, of this reactionary dictatorship. But <laughs> that, that was wholly supported by the United States. So when Castro comes to power, you know, they couldn't deny the justice of his cause, but they were very apprehensive about what he was going to do. And rightly so, because he was going to take that revolution and steer it to the left and make it a real socialist one-party revolution, redistribute income, you know, mass education, a classic kind of communist egalitarian project, which was like anathema to the United States in Real so many quick, ways. I, yeah. I just wanted to add to that. That's another aspect of this book that I find really interesting. I think when you talk about these characters like Richard Helms or even these figures from the world of a spookery like, um, <laughs> you know, a Frank Wisner, uh -huh. these are people that really had this sort of, I would say, ideology of like a free world ideology where they're like, it's almost like manifest destiny 2.0, you know, we're, we're going to make the world free and we'll stamp out communism. And that, that seems to be an ideology that sort of uh, lurks throughout this sort of covert yeah. history. Yeah. I mean, th this was the generation that came of age, you know, going to war against Nazi Germany. And when the United States um, you know, emerges, the United States and Soviet Union emerges as the, as the winners of the war, you know, that that same confrontation, this is a fight to the death against the totalitarian enemy. That same mentality is immediately transferred to the Soviet Union. And so, the, yeah, this creed, we fight for the free world, we fight for it everywhere, Cuba, Vietnam. One more thing to, to note about Cuba is, you know, not only did it have that history in, of this very pro-American environment, um, and it was very close to the United States, Cuba also had, you know, mandatory racial segregation. And Castro abolished that immediately upon coming into office. And in the context of the civil rights struggle of the 1950s, when the civil rights movement is just beginning to blow up and you know Jim Crow is still the, the, the law of the land, you know, Castro was frightening to, especially in the Southern United States, because he was abolishing the kind of racial hierarchy that their whole society was based on. And that's why Castro was popular on college campuses um, with both black and white students. It was like, this guy really gets it. He's, he's, you know, he's the future. He's not stuck in this racist reactionary past like we are. So that was inspiring. That was also something that made the CIA fear him more, that he was Pac. That's why they were trying to kill him, because they understood that he was a, he was a formidable enemy. And he proved it by surviving you know, for the rest of his life you know, was never overthrown, was never killed, a remarkable achievement. But to go back to your beginning point, that, 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 that animosity 
generated by Castro's arrival, and then the failure of the CIA to get rid of him. So not only does Castro win worth once, take power, he's also can cast himself as, you know, the David who, who defeated the American Goliath, the, the, the underdog hero. And so that combination of U.S. failure and the success of this charismatic communist, that really, you know, that, that was like something that could never be forgiven. And so you have, you know, that animosity that it generates towards JFK and that figures in JFK's assassination, um, the politics of trying to assassinate Castro, that figures in the Nixon-Helms relationship. Um, and then, you know, by the late 1960s, kind of Castro has won, you know, he's in, entrenched in power. By then, the United States is bogged down in Vietnam. Cuba has faded as a domestic political issue. Um, and these guys in, in Miami have nothing to do. And so when Howard Hunt needs, you know, help doing his burglaries and stuff like that, he goes to Miami and recruits them by saying, you know, we're going to go take the fight to Castro. We're going to do, do some dirty tricks and find out something about Castro. These guys say, great, you know, they want to do it. So that that animus around Cuba even drives the creation of the burglars, you know, of the of the burglary team. So one more thing with regards to Cuba, and I, I think this is yeah. important, and it, it's more about I think uh, the Kennedy years in general. I've met people who who have said to me that the CIA never does anything that would go over the head of of the presidential administration. And I think in this book you show the ways in which you know Richard Helms would play sort of games with Bobby Kennedy or find ways to go over Bobby Kennedy's head. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean that's the defense. That's the CIA's defense, which is yeah, you might not like what we do, but this is the American system. This is what presidents want. If you're going to have a, you know, a, a clandestine service, you know, it's going to be something like the CIA. And we serve the president. And the president represents America. Um, and yeah, the, so the, in that picture, the CIA is this instrument of the presidency, uh, you know, which is to a degree true. But th the point is, is that um, as a, such a large institution, the CIA has ways of exercising its power, you know, over a president, preempting the choices, controlling the choices that the president sees. And, you know, clearly that the CIA was not totally under presidential control in this period. They were initiating all sorts of things. You know, one of the aftermath of the Bay of Pigs was people around Kennedy felt that this whole this whole plan had been foisted on the White House. Um, uh, you know, with the intention of setting the policy and, and, and not giving Kennedy a choice about what he wanted to do in Cuba. And Arthur Schlesinger writes a memo to Kennedy afterwards and says, you know, it's not true that the CIA doesn't set policy. It does set policy. It, it has a whole variety of ways that it can set policy. And so, you know, Kennedy was was concerned about that and, 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 and didn't, you know, and didn't want didn't want that. That's why he didn't want a CIA man to be the head of the CIA. He wanted his own appointee to, to, to be running that agency. So, you know, the, the, the CIA did have the ability to do that. And so, for example, you know, it's not at all clear that that when Helms went off and decided to assassinate Castro, that that reflected John Kennedy's wishes. Richard Helms said it did. He assumed it did. He apparently never asked Kennedy, do you, you know, do you approve of this? We're going to go try and kill the guy. Do you, you know, think that's a good idea? You know, so if the president isn't informed, can you say, oh, you, we're pursuing the president's policy? I mean, that's the CIA's thing is they say, we know he wanted that. You know, but they didn't. He didn't know because they never asked us, or at least they never. There's no indication that they ever asked. And this is true of other things that you see in this same period. And I talk about in the book other CIA practices. You know, no president ordered the CIA to spy on the anti-war movement. That was something that Helms inferred from his meeting with Lyndon Johnson. When Lyndon Johnson said, what the hell is this anti-war movement? Where is this coming from? You know, because it was blowing up on college campuses everywhere. It was getting bigger and bigger. So, he, you know, Helms takes it upon himself. OK, we're going to infiltrate and spy on the anti-war movement in the United States. Um, and that wasn't, you know, 
he didn't, Johnson didn't explicitly ask for that. And Nixon, when Nixon came in two years later, Nixon didn't ask for it. And they never told Nixon that that's what they were doing. So in that sense, that you know, they were setting the policy. Um, and so you see that, you see that overall, that, and that CIA defense, you can see it's, it, it's appealing in its simplicity, but in, in reality, it's not that simple. And the CIA does have ways of shaping the presidential agenda. One, one aspect of that that I found really interesting was the way in which, you know, the CIA and the press relationship where, you know, the CIA would sort of uh, push these stories out there. And, you know, then that gets back to the president. He's reading it in the newspaper and that can even influence policy, which is really interesting. I never even thought of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a part of the story here, I mean, part of the reason why the, the Washington Post narrative, the all the president's men narrative didn't get to the CIA was because the, C the agency and Helms in particular enjoyed this deference in the Washington press corps. You know, Helms was very respected. He was considered an apolitical director. He was considered a straight shooter, which he was not. He was a consummate liar. Um, but he had cultivated personal relations with senators of both parties, all, all ideologies. He cultivated the, you know, the barons of the press and the leading columnists of the day. So he gets a lot of deference. So when he said, oh, these burglars, we really know nothing about them. People said, oh, okay. You know, they, they took him at his word. And now we can see that that was, you know, that was very clever of him. And he shaded his stories. He was very good at shading his stories. He, he could tell you like a good story and just leave out like one key detail. And so it would sound very convincing. It wouldn't sound very defensive. You know, he was very good at being, at presenting the agency's position in a very calm, understated way and, and was convincing. And was also, you know, in, in large part or frequently quite deceptive. You know, I know this is a book about Helms and mm -hmm. Nixon, but in a way there's sort of a third character lurking in the background a lot of the time. And that's E. Howard Hunt. And E. Howard Hunt is just... Endlessly fascinating to me because uh, not only is he this sort of spy figure, but he's also writing spy fiction under an <laughs> alternate name. And I, I was surprised when you got into that in the book because I never hear anyone talk about the spy fiction he wrote. I remember um, one time I, I picked up this uh, like dime store pulp novel called The Coven, which is uh, uh, one of his books, but it's like an occult spy thriller with witchcraft. <laughs> he wrote some really interesting uh just pulp spy fiction. Like he was, he wanted to be the American James Bond, like American Ian Fleming. Yeah. Um, he was a prolific writer. He, I mean, the guy wrote, he, I mean, I think he wrote 40, 50 novels in his life. I mean, he would write two or three a year. He couldn't, he couldn't stop himself. Um, and, you know, some of them aren't bad. He, he's probably a case of a guy who wrote too much. He, he probably would have been a better writer if he didn't write quite so often. Um, but, you know, it's it is part of the story because the whole mythology of spies of James Bond, you know, that was that shaped the public impression, you know, up until, you know, before the 1960s, you know, spies were considered, you know, they were they were like thieves. They were sort of low level. And the genius of Ian Fleming was to kind of glamorize the whole thing. And it did wonders for the reputation of the British Secret Service. Um uh, and so Howard Hunt did envision himself as the Ian Fleming of, of, of the CIA and, and Helms supported him because that would have been good for the agency's reputation. It would have made the agency work seem glamorous and attractive. And that was Helms was concerned about criticism of the CIA, which in the 19, by the 1960s was rising. The agency kind of gets a free ride in the 1950s, but in the 1960s with the Bay of Pigs and people begin to see, people began to learn about you know, the nasty, ugly side of the CIA, the corrupt side, the, the reactionary side. Um, and, there, you know, there starts to be criticism of the CIA for the first time on Capitol Hill and some of the newspapers and things like that. Helms was very worried about that. So a good, you know, a good movie about the CIA, well, that would do that would do wonders. And so Helms was very savvy about the agency's reputation. He, you know, he pushed that project. Unfortunately, the books were terrible and everybody in Hollywood read them and said, this is crap and we're never going to make a movie out of this. So for you, what, what is the importance of, I mean, obviously Hunt goes on to be one of the burglars, but how does he sort of fit into your telling of the story of the Scorpion's Dance? 
Well, you're, you're right that he is kind of a third major character. And I, I, I think this is very important in thinking about like how the burglary came about because, you know, Hunt was the burglar in chief. He was the guy from the CIA who had the reputation, you know, um, and Helms had recommended uh, him to, to H.R. Haldeman, to Nixon's chief of staff. And he said, you know, this guy, this guy is ruthless and quiet and careful. You know, he's the guy you want. So, um, so the fact that he comes at the recommendation of the CIA director, something that Woodward and Bernstein never knew, and even the Watergate investigators never knew that, that Helms had actually wrecked. First of all, they didn't know, they didn't know how good friends Helms and Hunt really were. On the witness stand, Helms pretty much lied and said, oh, that Howard Hunt is a bit of a romantic, you know, like as if he barely knew him. In fact, they had lunch all the time. They were personal buddies, you know, and Helms was very astute. He understood that Hunt was very brash. He was outspoken. He was a vehement right winger. You know, that was not that wasn't the style at the CIA where, where people were more buttoned down, you know, uh, you know, discreet. He wasn't exactly discreet, but he was a good match with Nixon because he has shared that same anti-communist ideology, kind of slasher politics, blackmail him, you know, dirty trickster. And so that's why Helms recommends him. And and so, you know, that's the that's the nexus of where the interests of the CIA and the White House converge is in the person of Howard Hunt. So Helms recommends him and you know, that's where they begin working together. So the first thing they do is they go after Daniel Ellsberg, um, the guy who, who leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. And they right. want They tried to break into his psychiatrist's office and take his files. They hated him. Yeah. Right. They, right. And, and same thing, same, same technique, blackmail. Right. You, you get personal information about somebody and you use it against them in a public way, you know, to discredit them, to impugn them, to, you know, discourage them. Uh, and that's what they were looking to do with Ellsberg. And I show in the book that, you know, that was the same kind of thing that was at work in Watergate. They were they were looking for dirt on Democratic politicians. You know, they were looking for information about their about their sex life because Nixon was 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 going to thinking about running for reelection in 72. He was running for reelection in 72. And he wanted he wanted dirt that he could use against the Democrats to, you know, to to, to make them look bad. And so that was the modus operandi of these guys was blackmail, you know, and that was another thing that, that it's a little bit kind of, uh, I don't know, cleaned up in the in the all the president's men version. You know, these weren't just burglars, you know, these were assassins. You know, Hunt was involved in, in plots to kill Castro. Frank Sturgis was involved in plots to kill Castro. Bernard Barker was in, involved in plots. You know, and so they were killers. You know, they were after blackmail material. I mean, this was the real underbelly of American power. I mean, and I'm not saying that that they whitewashed it in all the president's men, but it didn't. When I came to the story, I came to realize this was even these guys were even rougher and nastier than people generally thought. And people thought they were plenty nasty and rough to begin with. But, you know, it really was the kind of back alley, you know, gangland style of operating that was going on. So ultimately, why does Helms end up suggesting Hunt to Nixon? And why, why does he become enmeshed in this? Like, what, what, what does he gain from it? Well, in the policy arena, Helms and Nixon saw eye to eye. And so for, from, from, from Helms's professional point of view, what he wanted out of the White House was he wanted authorization to spy on the anti-war movement. He wanted authority to break into people's houses. He wanted authority to wiretap people. And this was what Nixon was trying to, to push through as part of his national security agenda. He was fighting the war in Vietnam, and he was going to fight this war at home. And, and, if the, and one of the unexpected things that happens is, uh, you know, this is, and this is going right up into unconstitutional, illegal territory for the, you know, Nixon's really pushing the envelope because he's so frightened of the anti-war movement and what's, and what's going on. If and I could real quick, sure. just, give, just give listeners an idea of this. And I like how he actually comes up in the book too. But I, I, when you talk about, uh, you know, this desire that these right-wingers have uh, to just crush the anti-war movement, I think about that 
uh, debate that, you know, Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley had. And I, I did not realize until reading this book that Buckley and Howard Hunt were close. But you listen to that debate and you see Buckley going on about, you know, oh, they're all crypto communists, Maoists. That's what these kids doing the anti-war stuff uh, are. You know, they're secret crypto commies and we have to stop this. There was this sort of mentality that, you know, the, the anti-war movement was this subversive movement that needed to be crushed. Yeah, no, and 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 the point is, is that Helm shared that view. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't um, he didn't engage in attack politics the way Nixon did. But in terms of policy, in terms of what the government actually did, he wanted Nixon's endorsement. And the, ironically, the one who expresses doubts or civil liberties concerns is J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the of the FBI, who we think of as sort of the arch reactionary, you know, repressive type of guy in the U.S. government, you know, he he was actually worried and didn't want to do this stuff that Helms and Nixon wanted to do, this really aggressive stuff, because he thought it would blow up. He thought it would be unpopular. He thought, you know, if it was exposed, he would have a, a world of trouble. Helms didn't have that problem. So Helms really sides with Nixon. So that's what he gets out of it is he wins favor with the president. And this was Helms was very adept at. So, you know, Helms understood his job as serving the president. The president wants a dirty trickster. I got just the guy for you. His name's Howard Hunt. And and, and so Helms becomes the the enabler uh, of, of Nixon. And and. By bringing in Hunt, I mean, if, if, if Helms hadn't brought in Hunt, the whole thing never would have happened. There would have been no team of burglars. There was only one non-CIA person connected with the seven burglars. That was Gordon Liddy. You know, Gordon Liddy was brought on because you had two experienced CIA guys, McCord and Hunt, already on the team. And so, you know, that was uh, how Helms served Nixon. You need some dirty tricksters. Here you go. You know, these guys are good and you can take it from there. And so then, you know, another thing that I show is that while these guys were working for the White House, they were nominally retired from the CIA. But the information that the burglars collected wound up going back to the CIA, which makes sense, right? The CIA wouldn't, if they obtain secret information, they're not going to throw it away. They're not going to pass their eyes on it. To, to the contrary, they're going to collect it and organize it. And so McCord and Hunt were feeding information back to the CIA, the information that they obtained from their political burglaries. So I, I want to get into uh, some other areas of the book, but when it comes to Watergate itself, um, it, it's odd. I know younger people and people my age that I, I don't know that it's always taught well in schools, maybe because it's seen as like a, a black mark on American history. But what do you think the most important points people should be uh, understanding about Watergate from a historical perspective? Because I think sometimes uh, a lot of people gloss over it or, or it's hard to look at because it is that sort of uh, black mark type thing. So what do you think people uh, should really understand about Watergate? And what do you think maybe a lot of people miss uh, about Watergate um, or, or don't understand about it? Well, I mean, uh, I, th I, I, I think two things. One is this unchecked power of the presidency that is authorized by our national security legislation, National Security Act. This is a blank check for a president to do whatever he wants. And, you know, Watergate shows how easily that power is corrupted. And that's one point. And the second point is, is that, and this speaks to the all the president's men myth, you know, the CIA was deeply implicated in that. So the presidential abuse of power is enabled by the CIA's clandestine power. And that, if you're going to have a CIA and a, and a powerful presidency the way we have, that is a constant, you know, that's a, that's a fixed reality of American politics. A, a presidency with enormous powers of discretion, especially when it comes to foreign policy and a clandestine service that has, you know, that is a law breaking agency. And so, you know, the potential for the abuse of power, Watergate shows just, you know, it's the perfect example of how the, that those kind of powers corrupt. And, you know, we've seen it time and again since then. So it's sort of the founding example of this problem of you know a clandestine service in a democracy, and you know it's with us today. What do you think some of the key points uh, that people should understand about 
uh, the sort of Helms-Nixon relationship uh, before Watergate, like um, in, in relation to things like uh, the, the escalation of the Vietnam War uh, or, or some of the things that happened in Chile? Um, well, you know, these are both men, Helms and Nixon, who share this ideology that communism or what we perceive as communism has to be fought everywhere and with, you know, illicit methods, plan, with a, you know, clandestine service. It's covert operations are inherently illegal in other countries. Um, uh, so it shows the ascendancy of that, of that, of that mentality but also how it collapsed because the lies just got to be too much. You know, the lies around Vietnam, the lies around Cuba, um, you know, the, the spying on Americans. This project, which had this war, you know, aura of coming out of World War II, you know, the good fight against communists, the CIA, the good guys, you know, it was totally discredited by their own deceptive crime. You know, and things like the Kennedy assassination, where, you know, the CIA's never investigated for, for a deeply suspicious crime, you know, and they and so they have this impunity. And by the time the war is failing and the anti-war movement has erupted in the civil rights movement, that whole ideology just lost all credibility. And so Watergate is seen as a political scandal, but it should also be understood as a as a crisis of this national security state, you know, this fighting this useless and brutal war and, and, and losing on top of it, you know, um, it was just appalling and people just began to reject the very premises and they were, you know, don't trust anybody over 30. It was like, you guys are crazy, you know? And so you have this cultural revolution. So Watergate is a, is a political event. It's a, it's a crisis of the national security state. And there's also this cultural revolution that's happening at the same time where the new, the counterculture comes in and these institutions like the presidency and the CIA, which had enjoyed this perfect deference just 10 or 15 years before, nobody would think to question the CIA, you know, and now, and, and, and 15 years later, just the public opinion has changed totally. And it's like, these people are out of control. We have to bring them under control, you know, and Watergate, the resignation of Nixon, the investigation of the scandal, the investigations of the CIA that follow with the church committee, you know, really bring this kind of reform revolution to Washington. And CIA's budget is cut for the first time. You know, the CIA doesn't enjoy deference. They, 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 you know, they, they take a lot, of, for the first time, people are very cynical and take, the agency takes a lot of criticism. So Watergate was, 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 was those three things kind of all wrapped into one. And, and so, you know, the all the president's men narrative simplifies it down to, you know, crusading press takes on the wall as president. And that really, it's true as far as it went. And I'm not knocking Woodward and Bernstein. I think that, you know, they saw a good story and they went after it and they got it, you know, that, but, I mean, but, it's, but, it's but only missed, one. <laughs> yeah, but they, but they, they missed the CIA part of it. And so it's, yeah, it's just one part of it. And, and when you look, when you step back and you see it in the scope of history, it's, it's kind of simplistic. Right. That's which, what I was which is why, say. Which is why it's tracked, you know. Well, that, that's what I was going to say. You can connect it to all these other different events, whether it's the, the Kennedy assassination, the escalation in Vietnam, the sort of dirty tricks against Salvador Allende as the Chilean yeah. president. Uh, so it all sort of connects in that way. Uh, the, the last two things I wanted to cover uh, you mentioned the assassination, and it's it's interesting. I think you've always been responsible in your research on the Kennedy assassination. You've never made uh, claims of, oh, this group did it or this person did it. Uh, but you have dealt with this issue of uh, pre-assassination knowledge of Lee Harvey Oswald, and that fits into the book. Um, so I guess uh, you document uh, Helms sort of helping to downplay CIA yeah, pre-assassination I mean, knowledge of Oswald, right? Yeah. I mean, I've only come to understand the story myself in recent years. And with the, the full declassification of the, all the, the paperwork, excuse me, that the CIA is known to have had in its files, you know, before November 22nd, 1963. And it, I mean, when you see it all in one place, it's impressive. I mean, it, it it's, it's, it's actually amazing because, you know, the idea that this guy was a lone nut who, who nobody in the U.S. government really knew anything about, it's completely and utterly false. 
I mean, a, a whole senior CIA operations officers, a half dozen of them, knew everything about this guy. They knew where he lived. You know, Angleton was reading Oswald's mail. Okay, you know, uh, they knew everywhere he lived. Every time he moved to a new place, they were informed of where he went. They had forty documents, forty-two documents, and these are the ones that we know about. It's also possible that material was taken out of that file at some point. In fact, it's quite probable that it was. But the extant Oswald pre-assassination file, you know, it's 45 documents from a bunch of different agencies, you know, and then Helms goes into the Warren Commission in six months, five months after the assassination and says, you know, we really didn't know anything about this guy. Our information was, and he said, probably minimal. Our pre-assassination of Oswald, what was it? They asked him, how much did you know about this guy Oswald before the assassination? He said it was probably minimal. And the probably is, a, is, is the work of a bureaucratic genius, because by inserting that word, he probably spares himself from the charge of perjury, if anybody had known that he was lying. It was definitely not minimal. <laughs> you know, it was maximum. They knew his politics, his personal life, his, uh, his associations with foreigners, his travels, his address. They knew a lot about this guy. And then when the president is killed and this fellow Oswald is arrested and says, oh, oh I'm a patsy, um, you know, they say we knew nothing about him, which was a complete lie. And now, so real, real quick, is it possible that Helms himself didn't necessarily know about Oswald, but but Angleton definitely did? And then maybe Helms downplayed that or? Yes. No. And, 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 and that's another explanation is that it was. Oswald was the Oswald file was was held in Angleton's office by Angleton's people and Helms totally trusted Angleton. So if Angleton had gone to Helms and said if Helms had gone to Angleton and said, what you know, what did we know about this guy? And and Angleton said, well, it was probably minimal. Helms would have accepted that and, and turned around and told that to the Warren Commission. And that's quite possibly what happened. I don't I don't know that. Helms would have known about Oswald before the assassination. I mean, his assistant, his, his closest deputy, Tom Karamacinas and Bill Hood, another close aide, were informed about Oswald, but they might not have told the boss, you know, especially if it was an Angleton operation, you know, keep it tightly held. There would be no reason to tell Helms about that. Now, after the assassination, Helms would have demanded to see everything because he was a meticulous guy. And he would have asked Angleton. So I think at that, after the assassination, Helms knew about that whole file, or maybe he just said, I don't want to even see that file. That's possible too. Helms was a canny guy in that way, right? Like if I don't, if I don't look at it, then I can't say anything about it. Um, but, you know, at that point, he was responsible for knowing what was in the CIA's hands. So just to say he didn't know, you know, before the assassination or, you know, he didn't want to see the file after the assassination, that doesn't really spare him from responsibility for deceiving the Warren Commission on a very fundamental question of what did the CIA know about this guy before he allegedly shot the president? Why did people like Angleton have their eye on Oswald. This ties into a figure, uh, George Joannides, right? Yeah. Uh, well, a, a whole bunch of reasons. Oswald is, is, goes to the Soviet Union in 1959 and proclaims himself a supporter of communism and wants to live there. And, you know, in 1959, that was pretty rare. Not many people went to the Soviet Union, um, uh, much less lived there for a couple of years. Um, so, you know, he was a figure of interest that way. Um, he was also, um, you know, when he after his return to the United States with his Russian wife, Marina, um, becomes active in, on the Cuba issue. Um, and uh, and that's where he also comes to the attention of the CIA when they receive the FBI reports on Oswald's pro Castro activism in New Orleans. So, you know, the, he was a figure of of of. Of, now we can say he was a figure of intense CIA interest for four years before the assassination. These top officials were reading his file and they were making decisions based on, you know, what they learned about him. And they were disseminating information to other government agencies, you know. So he was a guy who was closely watched, you know, right up until, right up until, you know, the assassination happened. And that figures in the story because when all of that happens, 
the CIA buries the story. They lie. They say we didn't know anything about that guy. Helms lies to the to the Warren Commission. But the, the Helms knows how vulnerable the agency is on this question. And so he's constantly, you know, trying to protect the agency. And this is where the relationship with Nixon becomes important is Nixon intuits. Nixon, Nixon knows perfectly well the CIA has a lot to hide on the assassination of JFK. And so that's he, Nixon kind of leans into uh, 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 Helms and, and, and plays on that. You know, he knows that JFK assassination is a, is a sore spot for the agency. He knows he can pressure them by raising the subject. So that also comes into play. So. Another point I just want to raise here before we wrap is uh, it's interesting to me. I did not know that uh, shortly after Kennedy's assassination, I think uh, you write about how uh, Harry Truman actually writes a a whole uh, op-ed saying, you know, we need to abolish the CIA. Uh, Could you talk about um, that that story? Yeah. Well, you know, after the assassination, the the government is trying to say one man alone did this. This was not, there was no conspiracy, no foreign or domestic conspiracy. They, they really want to bury the story because, you know, if, if it had been known at the time that the CIA knew all about this guy who killed Kennedy, you know, there would have been hell to pay. People would have lost their job. So, you know, they've got to bury the story. And, but Harry Truman, the 33rd president, the man who signed the CIA into existence, who signed the 1947 National Security Act, you know, and had been president and served by the CIA for, you know, for from 1945 to 1952, 1947 and 1952, you know, his reaction to Kennedy's assassination was, we got to abolish the CIA. Now, he never said that the CIA was responsible for Kennedy's assassination, but there's no other way to understand why he wrote that piece for the Washington Post at the time he wrote it. It was published exactly one month after Kennedy's assassination. He started writing it the day the FBI report was released saying Oswald acted alone. So Truman did not buy the official story that it was one man alone and unaided. And he clearly suspected that the assassination did or might well have emanated from people in the CIA. And, you know, that story, it's, it's a very significant story because it shows that something that I show throughout the book, you know, the official story is uh, that Kennedy assassinated conspiracy stuff, you know, pay no attention to that. It's completely ridiculous. We don't need to think about that. Men of power, Harry Truman, Richard Helms, Richard Nixon, they thought about it in very realistic terms. They did not talk or think about it in terms of the fantasy of a lone gunman. They thought about it in terms of will this harm the CIA if people ever learn what was going on in the months and weeks leading up to Kennedy's assassination. So the politics of assassination are very real at the highest level. And that includes, you know, Harry Truman, the guy who actually created the CIA and knew it as well as anybody. He feared what it had become. The very last thing I wanted to ask you, I promise to let you go after this because we've gone a little over the hour already, but, um, you know, this is sort of taking a critical view of Helms and Nixon. And then also I think Hunt, but is there anything, you know, I, I think there's also at times in this book, there's a human side that comes out with people like Nixon and Helms and Hunt where, you know, you can sort of, you don't see their perspective necessarily or agree with them. But do, do you think there is a, a human element to them that maybe people oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I, I don't demonize people. I mean, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who, were very proud to say Dick Helms was my friend, you know, and liberal people, um, you know, uh, and he was a very attractive person. And to get the kind of power he had, he was very effective. He was very smart. He was very adept. He was, you know, he's a, he's an impressive personality. So I don't want to demonize him. And, and I, you know, where he did good things, I, I try to give him credit. You know, Helms was always skeptical about Vietnam and he, he his own analysts in the on the intelligence side of the CIA, not the not the dirty tricks side, you know, the intelligence analysts, some of the smartest people in the world, you know, experts in their field, you know, from the start, they were like this. People say, how's the war going? The CIA would say it's not going well. We're not winning, you know, and the military, they hated that. The White House, they hated that. But inside the government, the CIA was 
the most skeptical institution about the war. Um, so, you know, um, Helm, there were times when Helms stood up to Nixon and, 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 and stood his ground and, and did things. And so I don't I don't want to I don't want to demonize them. I want to capture them as they looked to people around them. And then, you know, you can decide, you know, do you like them or not? And I, I, over time, you get my point of view, but I don't want to impose my view and say, you know, Dick Helms was a bad man. It, that's simplistic. You know, um, I mean, you might conclude he was a bad man. I think, he, you know, I think he was a, a, a very tricky, devious, dangerous character in a lot of ways. But, you know, there's a, people saw him all different ways. And if you want to portray somebody realistically, you have to try and get, you know, a, a two or three dimensional view of them, not a one dimensional. I think that's the reason I asked that is because I think it's one of the strongest aspects of the book. Uh, for instance, when you talk about Nixon, you do get into the fact that, you know, Nixon feels like he has had to fight his way up all the time. And he sort of resents the, the Kennedys and the people that are sort of already part of the establishment. He feels like an outsider. And you can sort of, you know, you sort of can empathize with him on some level, you know, the, those feelings he has. Uh, but you also can be very critical of him at the same time. And I think you paint a very whole picture of all these characters, including Hunt. You know, when you when you write about how Hunt even wrote some of these spy novels where the main character, I think <laughs> Peter Ward starts questioning, you know, his profession. <laughs> it, there is this human side that you capture in the book. And I, I find that really, it really works well for the book. And I think it adds something to it. So I want to thank you for that. And also, uh, how can my listeners get a hold of Scorpion's Dance? Scorpions Dance available on Amazon, or if you want to cut Jeff Bezos out of the deal, the barnesandnoble.com site uh, is, the, uh, is the place to get it. There's also an audiobook version, which is quite good. It's, it's read by the same guy who read, my, who read The Ghost, um, and it's very forceful, kind of a good, a good actor voice, makes the story more dramatic. And well, thank you for your comments about you know, showing the personal side. That's something I, I, I tried very hard to do to make sure that people could see the human side of these people, the attractive side of otherwise unattractive people so that they, they become more real. And it makes it, it makes it a more interesting read. It, it, it makes it almost like a, you know, this isn't politics, you know, there's a, a novelistic quality to it. These are, these are unique individuals. Um, as well as, you know, important political figures. So, And is there anything else you want to say in closing, uh, you know, just uh, what you hope listeners get out of this conversation in the book or um, how they can keep up with your work? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I think if you're if you're interested in this book, you'll be interested in my other two books, um, which are also about the C about the CIA in the first you know, 25 or 30 years of its, of its existence. Um, uh, Our Man in Mexico, which is the story of Winston Scott, the CIA's top man in Mexico in the 1960s. That's a very vivid portrait of a, a spy working on the, you know, on the ground level, you know, in a foreign country. And then The Ghost is the story of James Angleton. That's kind of the story of the spy as intellectual, super smart, paranoid, you know, brilliant. And then Scorpion's Dance is more about the spy as a bureaucrat. Helms is this very adept, smooth, inside operator. Three very different types of people reflecting different aspects of how the CIA functions in, in, in the United States and in the world. So if you're interested in this book, you'll also be interested in those books. And if you're interested in the JFK angle of it all, um, you should check out my site, jfkfacts.org. Um, where I blog about uh, the Kennedy assassination and uh, and related matters, and so if that part of the story interests you, that's the place to learn more about what I what I've done, what I've reported in the past. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jefferson Morley, author of Scorpion's Dance: The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do with Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. If you're thinking of supporting me at the $10 tier or above, you'll get a producer's credit shout-out, and I am currently in the process of updating the producer's credit shout-outs at the beginning of the show, so if you want, try to get in on that at the $10 tier and above at patreon.com 
slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.